Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Paul Anderson. But before we get started, I just wanted to share my excitement in this year of 2021. We are I'm really excited about this year. I'm really excited to bring in my mentors, my colleagues, my friends, people that I'm super curious about interviewing to bring to you so we can help give you resources and feel empowered with whatever you need to support your health. I also wanted to share that I have created my own clinic, uh, Eminence Health. I have a wonderful team of physicians um, in Seattle, Washington. I also have two doctors I work with in California. We can support you in clinic or virtually. So please check out my website, eminencehealth.com. And again, I am so excited to be sharing this information with you today. Um, as we dive in today to the podcast, Dr. Paul Anderson has been a, a mentor of mine. He was a teacher to me at Bastyr University, and he does such amazing work. And a little bit about him. And Dr. Anderson is recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex, infectious, chronic, and oncological illness. In addition to three decades clinical experience, he also was head of the interventional arm of the U.S. NIH-funded human research trial using IV vitamin C and other therapies in cancer patients. He's the co-author of the Hay House book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies with Dr. Mark Stangler, as well as co-author with Jack Canfield in the anthology Success Breakthroughs and the upcoming Lioncrest publishing book, Cancer, Living Your Life While You Have It. He's a frequent CME speaker and writer and has extended his educational outreach through his CE website, consultdranderson.com. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast today with Dr. Anderson. We're going to be talking about his new book, uh, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. And then we're also going to have some pearls around IV vitamin C um, and COVID. So enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm here with my dear colleague and mentor, Dr. Paul Anderson, and we're going to be talking about his new book. So welcome, Dr. Anderson. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you wrote another book. You're pretty prolific now. You're a book author, and I know that you've done so much work for our profession in general through teaching and writing. And is this your second book? Am I wrong? Is this, is, I mean, you've written textbooks and things. but So is- yeah, so in the non-textbook arena, this this is my third. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I apologize. Yeah. That's, so, oh, that's that's all right. I lose yeah. track of stuff. <laughs> so um, this book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment, what prompted you to write this book and uh, really specifically about this topic? Well, it was uh, talking about books. Uh, it was a natural follow-up really to the book prior that, that Mark Stengler and I put out in 2018, which was Outside the Box Cancer Therapies. And that book was very focused on the science behind integrative cancer therapies. And we did talk about mind-body and and things of that nature in the book, but the book really was going down the trail of what are you doing you know, for your cancer in the physical realm? And I just noticed uh, in the couple of years after the book came out, as I was working with the doctors I work with and mentoring people and their journey with their cancer patients, something that kept coming back up to me over and over was the idea of where the mind-body connection to you getting a cancer diagnosis and how you do with your diagnosis fits in. And in the book, I, I make a the non-distinction of whether some people like to think of it as the a mind-body experience. Some people think of it as a mind-body and spirit experience. And I, and I think whichever works for you is great. So I, I leave that open to whatever people want to do. But basically, whatever that is, 
Uh, this book, I thought I wanted to just dive into that. People have enjoyed. It's a little bit shorter than the big uh, outside the box book, and it's it's really geared towards either a patient or a loved one, a supporter of a patient, because both sides of that equation have the effect of getting a cancer diagnosis and then being kind of just completely thrown off, uh, you know, off your feet. And the problem that I saw with people was if they didn't, um, it's natural to do that. Of course, nobody wants a bad diagnosis. But if you don't work back through that and reconnect your mind and your body and become instead of a, you know, scared or angry or, you know, whatever uh, you initially are, become an empowered person who is either supporting your, your loved one with cancer or you have the cancer yourself. If you can't move towards being empowered, you're outcomes are not very good. And this is actually what I've seen over all the years, but also there's a lot of research around empowerment and outcomes in medicine, especially around cancer. Mm -hmm. So the book is designed for the average person. Uh, It doesn't take any advanced degree to read or anything like that. And it's designed to show you what the normal pathway that all of us humans go through when we get bad news and show us places where we're likely to get stuck and then and then give tips on how to keep moving. Because mm-hmm. the point is you don't just wake up in, you know, empowered one day. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. you get a really bad bit of news and you have to process it and you want to process it, but you want to process towards a goal. And the mm-hmm. goal is empowerment. So that's that's the whole uh, point of the book. I love this. And um, there are not many books out there, you know, with this perspective or direction. And I, I love what you've shared. And I don't know if you know this, maybe you do, but my father's an oncologist. Um, and so I grew up a lot around cancer. And so, you know, and I did my work one, you know, before naturopathic school, I would sometimes volunteer, you know, or do the American Cancer Society thing. And you know, not to offend anybody, but I saw this like conveyor belt of fear, right? You know, it was just like you plop someone in the beginning to the end of that experience and it was palpable, right? Just the mm-hmm. the fear, the field of fear around mm-hmm. that diagnosis and that system. And I know that there's been strides in conventional medicine more than when I was younger at that time, but I still think the word cancer has such a heavy energy and heavy weight. And so yeah. when someone especially has a personal experience, yeah, there's so much to unpack. And so I guess you know, and I saw Dr. Lipton wrote your foreword, which is amazing. And he really has been a pioneer, right, of bridging the gap of really our thoughts do inform, you know, our physiology, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think, and I know we might be have had an aside about this, I think that can sometimes be misconstrued, right? Because some people can be like, oh, you know, feel guilty about being sick. And it's not about that in my perspective. It's like, okay, if our thoughts are that powerful, how do we harness them to as you say, feel empowered through your diagnosis and treatment. And maybe, maybe touch on that. Cause I'm sure that's come up, you know, all the yeah. guilt and shame and all the things yeah. people think when they feel that way. Yeah. That, and I think that is a really important piece of this is, and yes, yeah, I was, uh, I was as pleased and surprised when uh, Bruce Lipton <laughs> wrote the forward as anybody. Well, well, you're a big deal too, you know, so <laughs> it, it, it makes sense, but yeah, no. It's, it, you know, it was, it was a very kind thing for Bruce to yeah. do. And, yeah. and uh, he and I know each other just a very, very tiny bit, but we've yeah. always got along very well. But I think, I think one of the things that you, it's, it's a line that you have to really walk is we want to be realistic about 
the diagnosis and we want to be realistic about processing our own, you know, grief around the diagnosis, whether I'm supporting, you know, my loved one or it's my cancer. And part of that realism is, you know, there's a lot of, I, I have a lot of it's okay statements in the book and there's a lot of it's okays that, you know, it's okay if you're sad or you're angry, or you're upset, that's a human emotion. And that's not thing that's going to derail you and, and make you, you know, not respond to treatment or get sicker or whatever. It's not dealing with those feelings because those feelings are natural, but they're natural in a context. It's a bigger context. And so part of what I wanted to do was normalize and make it okay for people to feel badly about their diagnosis, et cetera, while at the same time being able to move forward and and say, you know, I, I can feel bad now, but there's a pathway to where this doesn't have to be the way that I transact business in my life. The other side of it that's, I think the the place where sensitivity comes in is it's easy to look the other way and say, well, you know, I have cancer, so I must have done bad things to bring this on myself. And there's a couple sides of that. And one of the really cool things in the book is I I got some of my patients to do interviews Mm -hmm. and they uh, let me put them in the book, which was really awesome. And, and there, you know, there's one of the patients that really brings that up that directly that they had none of the underlying things that would make a person normally susceptible to cancer. And they go through this whole thing. And their point really was sometimes, yeah, you know, you're sometimes you're a lifelong smoker and you're not surprised you got lung cancer or you were exposed Mm -hmm. to something and you're not surprised. But the big point is, is that that's really a peripheral discussion. That's a discussion for epidemiology and large numbers of people. If you or your loved one have cancer, that no longer matters. You can't Mm. go back and undo whatever you did in the past, whether it was part of your cancer or not. Mm. And so I think that the important part of that is is that you want to be open and honest and realize that, you know, there's some stuff you have no control over and you need to just put that aside and move on. And the real Mm. important thing is from today forward, what I do with this, you know, really powerful mind-body connection that I have and how do I make it work the best for me? And so then there's no there's no guilt or shame or whatever else comes up, you know, because there there is a, and I think most people don't mean to do it, but in, especially in integrative medicine, there's a lot of stuff you read that really sounds like sort of patient guilting, you know, like, well, if you would have done this, you wouldn't be sick. Well, maybe, you know, maybe not, but that doesn't help me when I'm sick today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, let's not make dumb decisions, but by the same token, we can't fix that stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's for prevention. So I think that that is an important thing. And it's, it's, I I would say, you know, when I got done this, this book underwent more edits and more layers of editors than, you know, anything else I've ever written. And it was largely because we wanted the message to be at the right level. And the editors wanted to make sure that I was translating, you know, my clinical experience into real life ideas that could be used. And that that became something throughout the book was, you know, if you feel X or Y, those are normal. That's okay. They're just Mm -hmm. not the destination you want to be at. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think, um, yeah, it's, you know, a theme, right? And healing is a lot of, you know, not to sound you know, trite, but like a lot of self-love, self-compassion, you know, it's like feeling those feelings, but I agree, like not getting into this, 
guilt or shame moment because um, we know that those um, feelings, if we stay stuck in them, they're going to affect our immune system and affect how we respond to treatment um, eventually, right? And so, um, so no, I, I think that's a really important point. And I'm glad that you're giving people this tool, right? So if anyone out there is listening and is either diagnosed or has a loved one, I think this could be, yeah, a roadmap. And Dr. Anderson has such uh, a lot of clinical experience, right? This is not just a theory or idea. I'm yeah. seeing this in action, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it was aside from all the editing that we had to do to make the story really, you know, come out with some good bones. There was nothing hard to write because it was all things I've had conversations with people for a mm-hmm. long, long time. And it was uh, it was intensely personal in that it was reverse looking back at the people that I've seen over time. And I've seen some people embrace the idea of becoming empowered and do better. And I've seen other people get stuck and not want to become empowered, not not do well. And that's a repeating thing, you know, so much so that I, I weave a story of two f- fictional patients. They're real people, but they're fictionalized throughout the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're counterpoint to each other of sort of if you want to be empowered, one kind of shows the way. And if you don't want to be empowered, the other one shows that way. And, mm-hmm. and it really, it's, it's, it's real life and it's, it's real mm-hmm. meaningful. Yeah. Love this. And how, how does the empowered patient walk through treatment? Is there kind of some, you know, again, people need to get this book and read the stories and all of that. Um, I want, of course, that to happen. But just when you think about, um, you know, the empowered patient, right, and how they approach whatever decisions or how they go through decision making, what are some things that you see that empowered patients, you know, harness? So I think that the first thing is, is that they're very, they're very realistic, and they're very much uh, living in whatever their current time is. So they're realistic about the fact that their diagnosis and their disease is whatever it is, you know, and it's almost, it's not like uh, some people will objectify their diagnosis and their disease in, in order to maybe deny it or minimize it or something like that. The empowered patient basically objectifies it as this is going on, but this is not me. This is not all. I have a lot of healthy me that is going on and is important and all of this. The next thing is that just like we talked about a minute ago, they're not living in the past of, well, what if I would have done this 10 years ago, you know, or whatever. And and I would have a lot of conversations with people, you know, with, with cancer, especially stage four patients when you're with them a long time and they get fairly uh, thoughtful about things and had a lot of people say, well, I read that uh, alcohol is a big, risk factor for breast cancer. And if I wouldn't have been an alcoholic and all this, and it's like, well, you know, that, that is part of your story, but there's absolutely nothing that you can do about that now, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's, it's a sad thing, but it's most empowered patients seem to process that and move on to what I have is today. And what Mm -hmm. I have is what I can do about today and plan to do about tomorrow. And that's really all that's within my control. And then the other thing I think that's really critical is there's a there's an understanding of I only have so much control over the the oncology world around me. If they're in standard therapies, you know, and that's what they're doing, they have control over who their doctor is probably, but most everything else is chosen for you. You know, your doctor, your oncologist tells you what you're going to do. And they might give you an option, but it's usually one or two. That's about mm-hmm. it. So then it's, if I'm going to go down this path, I'm 
buying into the idea that these are treatments. Again, they're external to me. They're part of my experience. And I only have so much control over how I react to them. But what I do know is that if I need help with a side effect or if I'm getting something that's not going well, that's in my control and I can I can do that. I can get help. I don't, I'm not a victim. And so I think, you know, a lot of it winds back to that idea that uh, empowered people are not superhuman. They're just not victims of their mm-hmm. circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's a, an important distinction and it's it's something that they all have in common. And something, although this book was way less about the science and data and stuff than Outside the Box was, which was all about that, I did put in a lot of newer articles around empowerment in the medical outcomes. Mm -hmm. And there's some really, I think, poignant things such as empowered patients, patients who have a sense in a a practice of empowerment, have better pain control than people who don't. And they have better outcomes for a lot of other things. These are not, these are not small things, you know, pain control and quality of life measures and all this stuff are big, huge things when you're going through cancer, whatever way you're treating it. And the final thing that I I, I think about in that respect, and this is uh, kind of the direction I wanted this book to be was, this book is totally agnostic to how you're treating your cancer. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is about your experience on the inside. So whether you're doing like all standard therapies or integrative mixture or or you're not doing any standard therapies or whatever it doesn't matter it's just about your experience and dealing with it yeah that's a really unique lens yeah it's it's kind of as you said it's the perspective a patient can no matter what choice they make right it's like we have the opportunity within to control how we feel and how we move through our experience and i think you know that's wonderful and i you know i, I guess i was going to ask this question it might not be relevant but i was going to say once kind of people got to this empowered place and they walked through treatment in this way did you find a theme of other support or treatments they either drew the, to themselves or that they kind of used um, to help them kind of maintain that state? You know, kind of just like there's like all these mind, body, spirit, you know, therapies and treatments, right? And I know this <coughs> book is more about the perspective, but just if someone needs, you know, like more tools, like whether it's body work or um, EMDR or whatever, just from your experience, mm-hmm. the things that you felt that you saw move the needle for people. Uh, no, that's a really good point. As far as things, and in in, in this is something that I bring up, and I, I try and bring it up from the point of view of mm-hmm. there's a lot of roads towards getting the help that you need there, and we don't all resonate with all sorts of types of uh, of healing or interactions, etc. So the first thing is deciding, you know, what you're, uh, what you're either greatly or marginally comfortable with, you know, kind of where your wheelhouse is. And so I bring up different ideas for people to look into, because a lot of times, uh, as, as everyone knows instinctively, a big change in your life diagnosis like cancer causes you to do things you maybe have been putting off or have maybe only given passing thought to before. Many people aren't sitting around thinking about their mind-body connection, you know, and, and that sort of thing, unless they're sick. That's that's usually when it comes up. And so what I try and do in the book is break down options for people where some people, it needs to start from more of a, I would say more of a linear consciousness point of view. So I talk about 
people in the helping professions who do more interactive type of therapies. So for example, in our clinic where we were dealing with cancer and chronically ill people, we had mental health professionals, whether it's psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera. And that's the only kind of patients they dealt with were people who had cancer or chronic illness. And they specifically were there to help them move through these issues, clear out stuff, and then get to a place of saying, it's it's okay for me to now get this kind of help, whatever it is. And then you get like to the next level, and there's a lot of gateways that open up into that. For some people, it was what I call the constitutionally oriented type of therapies. And these are often medical or quasi-medical therapies that people do. These are often a nice gateway for opening the mind-body connection and making you feel whatever it is you need to do next. Things like acupuncture do this. You mentioned EMDR and some other, there's a, a number of other things that can be done that way. A lot of constitutional types of either homeopathic interventions or even the physical like hydrotherapy type things are can be very constitutional and really get people in touch with their core. All of those things are other ways that we would do it. So a lot of times, for example, if a person wasn't really mentally struggling and couldn't get past, out of their head, sometimes depending on you know what seemed to be good for their case, I might send them to a colleague that did really good constitutional acupuncture work yeah. or constitutional fill in the blank work. And that would open up and they would start to ask the right questions about things. Yeah. Then you get to, you know, more, I hate to use their technique, but, you know, more actual, how do I make the connection things? Some people find that mindfulness practices are very useful. Some people find meditation practices are very useful. Some people like, you know, prayer and meditation. Some people like, you know, any number of other things. Those can be extremely useful, but it has to resonate with who you are. I think that happens on a lot of levels. And again, in the book, what I talk about is we all have this process we go through generally as humans, but one person may have no problem with the first two or three steps, and then they really get hung up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I might have trouble with the first step, and then I'm good for a little while. It's the same with uh, trying to find your connection to your, you know, mind, body, spirit, self you may already be doing a lot of work there and they, you just need, you know, more focus and a deeper dive. A lot of people, this is their first crack at it and they really have to feel their way through. Either is okay. The the point is doing it. Yeah. I love that. And there's, yeah, as you said, there's this huge toolkit, right. And having people, you know, again, resonate with the right treatment at the right time and the practitioner, but there can be a lot of insights, right. When we drop into mm -hmm. these like mm -hmm. deep parasympathetic states and sometimes they're not verbal, right. They're just kind of these body right. you know, yeah. sensations that, you know, yeah. you don't have to do the talk therapy. You can just let your body unwind, you know, of course it's all interconnected, but, um, but no, I just um, wanted to see your insights there. And I know this is kind of a big question, but I'm just curious. I mean, you've been a naturopath for quite some time and, you know, you've really um, honed in and really focused on chronically ill patients, of course, and then cancer and then having this perspective and this lens and all this amazing information that you put out, out not only about, again, this part of the process, but I mean, you have really amazing work on, you know, really treatment strategies for people to consider as part of their care. And so 
How do you feel the like the field of oncology, both conventional and integrative, or how do you feel the progress has been made to kind of look at this as more of an interconnected experience? I just kind of think about like I'm I was in my dad's office in the early, you know, 90s, mid 90s and seeing that experience, you know, now we're recording this in 2021. So do you feel like we've made progress in understanding how important this is? Or I'm, I'm just curious, putting you on the spot. <laughs> I would agree. I mean, if you think of it, my ex- experience with patients as, as a naturopath anyway is is that time period, that 30 years, you know, from the early 90s till now, the early 2020s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it, it is, the you know, a 30-year trip. And what I usually tell people is I think it, there's two levels of things on, you know, if I was to only listen to my better angels. Uh, the story I say is, uh, which which is true, and I, I do believe this hundred percent. I work with a lot of standard oncology people and know a lot of them, and and none of them want to do harm to anybody. Yeah. That's not their job. They are, and most will admit it, trapped in a system that doesn't change very fast and is, you know, very lumbering. And while the system maybe has some corruption, the the people don't. But what I would say is on the intellectual level now, what I see is the oncology community is is very open and invested in the idea that all of this is an important thing. You can't have a mentally damaged patient uh, who's in denial the whole time and all that and get the same output that you can with somebody who's really kind of on top of it, et cetera. So I think that, you know, it, and it's a lot like uh, you could you could fill in, you know, take away this topic and say the impact of a good diet or the impact of exercise. They don't dispute that that's probably not a good thing. It's just that their time is so set in not killing somebody with the therapies that they do for them that the system is just, it, that's the hub it revolves around. So it's not like, I, I don't see any you know malevolence. I just see it's too big of a job for one group of people to do. Mm-hmm. Now, if I look at it personally as somebody who's always been really on the outside of that system, even though I've been friendly at times, mm-hmm. um, as a practitioner on the outside, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, the most common thing you would hear is the oncologist would say, if you see Dr. Anderson to help you with this, I will no longer see you as a patient. Mm -hmm. They would fire them because, and I've heard everything from he'll kill you. What he does is dangerous. It's not scientific, all this stuff. So that was really common there for about the first 10, 15 years of those 30 years. And then it started to warm up a little bit. And even back in those days, what I found is uh, oncologists who were near retirement were my best allies mm-hmm. because they just didn't care anymore. And so they would send me their elderly patients and they would tell the elderly patient, look, I'll kill you if I treat you. I don't know what Anderson does, but but he won't kill you. So go over and see him. <laughs> and so I started collecting a lot of elderly cancer patients and they, mm-hmm. they would tell me the story. And I, I think, wow, an, an honest oncologist, there you go. And And then it started to shift a little bit. And then, you know, sort of the middle of that, 30 years there that was involved in research and that gives you maybe a little paper legitimacy or something. And, and that helped a little bit, but what it really did is it brought uh, people's true natures kind of out of the closet. So if you're in a research project with standard oncology, 
and there, we're supposed to refer back and forth, then you see there's an actual spread of philosophies from, hey, look, you've made your point that you're not going to hurt people. There's some science here. Sure, I'll send you patients. Mm-hmm. To, I think what you do is abhorrent and unethical and all this other stuff. And I'll begrudgingly send you patients, but I'm going to make it hard, you know. So it's sort of like it became out of the closet, you know, this bigger discussion. And, you know, now it's it's not a lot further than that, really. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, if you have a good relationship with an oncologist and you're doing integrative work, it can be the best thing in the world. If they don't know what you're doing, it's their mind is on other stuff and it's, you know, mm-hmm. they, they can be a little obstructionist. So I think that, you know, on the bigger picture of integrative therapies and all that, I, mm-hmm. I think the majority now agree that done correctly, that's a good idea. They just don't all have a lot of experience in seeing it work out. Yeah, no, that's, no, thank you for sharing that perspective. And it's interesting. It's like, yeah, slowly moving the needle, right? And it's just amazing how slow, you know, medicine can yeah. um, take to change. And you know, what sticks to me a lot too is like, okay, what is, I, I don't know if this is completely accurate, right? But it's like from a research study to clinical practices on average, like 17 years, something like that to take, yeah. you know, to really get adopted and implemented. So here's another question I'm going to put you on the spot with. So if you were going to do, you have all the funding, you're not going to be killed by big pharma, you know, like what kind of study would you want to kind of maybe get out there to kind of share how we can continue to open up and move the needle in uh, cancer treatment. Yeah, and I, and I was joking, you know, <laughs> just caveat, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it was all fair. Um, honestly, I've been blamed by some people for ruining uh, integrative oncology to a degree. Love it. <laughs> by, uh, by publicizing mm-hmm. these things. But right. sadly, I think mm-hmm. the best model for integrative oncology is a- actually the one that I was involved with the study for originally, and I would just make it a little more enhanced. In fact, there was a follow-up study that, that's a little bit better, and it was a whole, what we call whole practice study. So as opposed to studying just IV vitamin C and cancer or, you know, IV curcumin or mistletoe or something like that. What works for integrative oncology is not therapy-based. And most integrative oncology people need to get their heads out of that space. Therapies are important, but what really makes a difference, and this is something that we saw in doing the research, is not using therapy X for cancer Y, but it's actually using the correct suite of therapies for this particular patient. So in that study, and the design was masterful, Dr. Robin Anderson and Leanna Standish, uh, partners at uh, UW and Bastyr, came up with this whole practice model. And they said, so the patients are getting whatever they get on standard oncology side, which could be nothing, or it could be standard of care, it could be experimental. And then on our side, they come to us and we individually design a whole person treatment for them. And that might include nutrition, acupuncture, IVs, whatever. And our first goals were to look at if you had a person with stage four colon cancer and they were a female between 50 and 55, and you match them to a group who's not doing the integrative therapies, do they live longer? Easy Mm -hmm. thing to measure. We actually did have people live longer and then quality of life, stuff like that. So what I would do is a, is a, and the way that you send set that up, and this is something that I got involved with 
as we started was then what you start to do is track smaller parts of what you're studying. So everybody who got mistletoe, how, how did that go? Mm-hmm. Everybody who got artesanated vitamin C with breast cancer, how'd that go? You know, whatever. But I think that the real gold in integrative oncology and the real way to study it is, is in a whole practice model that's individualized. Mm-hmm. And then that puts the onus back on people practicing in integrative oncology to say, well, then that's the most important thing we do is to sit down and look at the patient and say, this isn't a protocol we do. This is this is a group of things that are good for you. So that's the way I study it. The, the other thing that we had that we don't have anymore, this is the part that people think I ruined, mm-hmm. is we had an open IRB to use uh, anything that we could justify as a therapy that could be shown to be safe. They didn't realize when they were doing that how many things I could come up with to use for people. <laughs> but, you know, so we were doing high dose intravenous curcumin, uh, which had miraculous results on metastatic cancer, artesanate and DCA and all these other things. And most of those have been restricted or removed by the FDA because I went around the country and said, hey, these things work. We should look into this. Now, they're being looked into by drug companies right now. So uh, so somebody got excited about it, but it was around people. So, you know, but that would be the other side of it. Yeah, I wouldn't hamstring the integrative oncology researchers and say you can't use anything. Mm-hmm. I would say you can use anything that, you know, you can do safely. So that's mm-hmm. that's the way I would do it. As I say, it would just be sort of an upgrade to what we did those years ago. And, you know, I know you've had this research mindset and that's what, you know, piqued my curiosity, um, given where you stand now. But I, I agree. I mean, it's like we have to get out of this kind of single intervention, you know, single yeah. data point that we're trying to manipulate, right? As naturopathic physicians that we're trained, right? We see the body in this holistic system and, you know, cancer, of course, how can we not look at it in this complexity in this holistic model. So no, I think that's a great point. And hey, be careful what you wish for. Hey, you might be, you know, that might be your next venture, right? And I um, I do agree with you, of course, that, you know, in the uh, the spirit of helping people and innovation, it's like not having our hands so tied, right? And, you know, having a creative spirit in medicine. And I, I think our conventional colleagues are probably frustrated themselves right there in these models that they have to conform to to help people. And then, you know, we have to always be careful about the tools we're recommending because of yeah. the landscape we're in. So yeah. Just, yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just a um, very true. Yeah, yeah. So I just try to think we're in a transformative time, you know, that mm-hmm. it's going to change eventually. We're shifting the paradigm, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, you know, but it will, it will happen true. eventually. Shifting gears, Dr. Anderson, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, that you've studied vitamin C therapy. I mean, you've trained physicians in IV therapy, and that's a huge tool in your toolkit. And so in the current pandemic that we're experiencing in the in the world, you mentioned that there's some exciting research around IV vitamin C as a tool that we should pay attention to. And so can you just share a little insight around that? Yeah, so I'll do the speed version if there is one. <laughs> So in the in the category of things that you never ever thought would happen because of all this time in vitamin C IVs being a part of the research prior when covid became a thing and hit North America at least when we knew it hit here that started to be a question that was out there and suddenly I was uh, on the high end of the list of people to ask to talk about vitamin C because I understood it from that point of view they thought so started to do some physician presentations and things. And one of the things that I was able to do early on as being male con- or 
electronic contact, I should say, mm-hmm. with the, the the Wuhan hospitals. And one of the things that they had done was they had some researcher there who was doing vitamin Cs with sepsis, and they thought, well, there's similar things with people in the hospital. Let's do a similar treatment, right? And they actually had a group of 50 out of about 360 ICU patients that they put on IV vitamin C. And of the first group, nobody died, which was amazing. And they were in the hospital less days. So that really kickstarted a lot. And everyone said, well, you know, that's anecdotal and American hospitals. There's, I've calculated right now, there's maybe 1% of American hospitals, U.S. hospitals that do vitamin C IVs with COVID. It's more than zero. Uh, I thought it was zero. So yeah, no, it's more than zero because there were some that were already doing sepsis vitamin C IVs. So they, you know, kind of got in there. Well, then what happened was thankfully early on in, uh, not in our country, although there might be one study going on now, but in China and there's another country that slips my mind right now because the publication literally came out like yesterday. But they did the same basic intervention with COVID patients in the hospital. So they went right to a human trial. The, the only time you speed anything up is when you have a pandemic. So we've sped up all the research machinery. And they basically tried to replicate what this first group of 50 did. And so one of the things about hospital IV vitamin C when you're really sick is as opposed to being in a doctor's office where we might give you all the vitamin C in an hour and a half or two or three hours or four hours, in the hospital, you're better off actually if the vitamin C just never stops going into you 24-7 because you got IV in anyway. So, and that's that's the most common protocol that was in the first Chinese cohort. So what these studies did is basically tried to emulate that in their ICU COVID patients and here, the bottom line, and I'm going to be at the end, we'll talk about where to find me, but I'll, I'll be posting mm-hmm. this as soon as I get both publications. And I, I don't want to talk about them before they're through peer review, but <clears throat> I'll be posting about this and I'll give numbers. But essentially, the uh, just like in the first Chinese group, the, the number uh, of people who died with COVID in the ICU was lower if they got vitamin C. But the other thing is certain chemi- chemical parameters such as IL-6, which triggers a lot of immune irregularity, were normalized by the vitamin C, which we would expect. And there's other things that happen too. So it's one of those things where it doesn't hurt any of the other medicines or interventions that are going on. It makes the human body less likely to become sicker and pass away. It's not a guarantee, but it's less likely. And it's, it's probably the least expensive treatment that the person gets while they're in the hospital. And just to put a point on it, in cases in the U.S. where sometimes I've been called by family members or hospitals to say, well, okay, we're going to try this, but we don't know how to do it. I, I wrote a paper that got published for hospitals, and so I send that to them and all this. It's very simple, but it's not they're not used to it, so it's one of those things. Mm. I just, uh, what I've seen is if they'll do it with people, we've had people that they thought were going to die who got off their ventilators and got out of the hospital which is in the hospitals have called it miraculous. And in the people where they've refused to do it, every single one of them has passed away. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, I understand the logistics of why this doesn't work quickly in America, but it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating mm-hmm. to then have to deal with the family who says, well, why won't the hospital? It's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of reasons. When, when the second of those two studies is, is fully tidied up in the publication, 
I'm going to write a, a, a summary and have links to it and put that out. And I'll do that on my regular social media outlets. And so, no, that, I mean, that's just so hopeful. I mean, I, I mean, we're in this medicine, so we're not surprised in any way, but I mean, right. I have, you know, this tool, right. I mean, I've been, you know, just, you know, kind of offhandedly saying like, well, let's just start with vitamin C in the hospitals and see what happens. Right. And it's just, I, I think there's just such a room for, you know, integrative medicine at that point. And, what about, you know, so obviously uh, vitamin C IVs um, have this benefit in the ICU. I don't know about you, but I've had some patients recently, you know, who get diagnosed with COVID, even at the Mayo Clinic, right, getting diagnosed and, you know, have risk factors and so forth. And I ask them, well, what do they give you for treatment? Nothing. So do you feel like vitamin C could have kind of this also role before you get to the ICU and maybe kind of before you get into this kind of this maybe preventative piece or even early diagnosis? Where do you see the potential for vitamin C in, in that phase of treatment? Yeah, definitely. The I mean, one of the things that uh, the Chinese brought out very early on was they, they were using vitamin C to keep people out of hospitals because they only had so many hospital beds. And of interest, uh, China is now to a point where they don't have enough new COVID cases going into the hospital to do many studies anymore. Oh, wow. They've had, wow. To, they've had to curtail their studies because of lack of patients going in the hospital. So what they did was uh, preventively oral vitamin C to bowel tolerance. Now, what I have seen personally and also talked to other doctors who have done it same thing. You get diagnosed, you're symptomatic, but you don't need the hospital. That's great. That's where you want to be. What do you do? They just say, take care of yourself and go home. In people where I've been able to get IVs into them in the first few days of their symptoms, whether it's fever, cough, et cetera, we've done not a continuous 24-hour drip, but we do a more standard, you know, like 50,000 milligram, 50 grams or 75 grams in a couple hours, two, three hours. In some people, we got to redo it. Some People who just got one strike at the beginning, but in every single one of those, their viremia and their uh, signs and symptoms were truncated. They were cut off so that they were very sick for a time period, but then they actually started to get better faster. If it were me, I would do the same thing. I would do a higher dose when I started to get symptoms, and then I would I would repeat it if I could. So I definitely think. I mean, there's there's many other nutrient things that are helpful, but I think. The nice thing about vitamin C is a couple things. One, we don't make it ourselves. Two, when we're sick, we need a lot more. Three, if you can get a lot into you, it it can go and it'll do different things in different compartments. If cells have viral infection, it's going to do different stuff than a normal cell will. So it can be supportive to your healthy tissues while helping your immune system deal with you know the virus. So I do think that that's a really important strategy if if it's available. Yeah, I know it's just so promising and I'm I'm so glad that, you know, obviously in the medical community they need to see studies and papers and all these things. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully with the advent of this information coming out, more people will move the needle. Maybe we'll aim for three percent of hospitals. That'd be um, great. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. So, no, um, thank you so much for sharing that. And, um, you know, as we uh, wrap up, Dr. Anderson, I'd love for people to find out more about where they can buy your book. I have it on my Kindle or where, you know, they can learn more about you. You do wonderful trainings for physicians and all of that good stuff. Sure. So on the book, as you said, it's it's on Kindle. It's also in uh, a regular paper version, if you like mm-hmm. that. Um, so the 
the, what we call the trade paperback and the Kindle can be got anywhere you can get books online. Powell's Books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc. The audio version is done. I recorded it oh. and uh, it'll be on all of the audio platforms. So Audible and all the other ones that are out there. And that's coming out, I'm told, I think the first week of February, early February. So if you like audiobooks, it'll be out there. And if people want a, uh, a signed hardcover, some people like that, there's a website called the drabooks.com, just drabooks.com. It's got my three public type books and uh, the one with uh, cancer, the journey um, is uh, it'll just say, do you, do you want a hardcover signed copy? And that'll go to a different place and they'll send you a signed copy. Awesome. What's your third book? I knew outside of the box. Can't the third book is is actually the, so. There's a theme here. It's actually about my my clinical experience. So it's how I evolved over time and kind of breaking down my my own internal process of evolution. Oh. But it tells the story of uh, pediatric cancer patients in mm. the beginning of my career versus later, and how they were triggers for me to learn and grow and evolve. So it's part of an anthology about about business uh, growth. And and so I was a chapter about that. Uh, it's So the anthology is called Success Breakthroughs and there's people like Jack um, Canfield and other oh, cool. people that are known in there. So that's the third one. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. And then just to plug too, you are a speaker on um, my upcoming Body Electric 2.0 yes. uh, Summit. And that's going to be out in the end of February. And you talk about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So I've really enjoyed getting to interview you not only today, but a few months ago. And I just can't thank you enough for the contribution that you continue to share with not only our profession, but the medical community and of course, uh, the patients who connect with your work. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I hope that you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Paul Anderson. He's such a gift of inspiration and knowledge. And please check out his website, consultdranderson.com. You'll find a lot of really clinical information to help you treat patients. And I've been a member of his online community for quite some time now. Shifting gears, we wanted to also share with you that I um, and putting on a Lyme intensive. This is a one-day course on January 30th. My idea around this was to really bring some wonderful friends and mentors and colleagues together to share what they're learning and practice and some really innovative solutions and tools to especially help patients who have Lyme. And so we put together a wonderful lineup with Dr. Kent Holtorf talking about peptide therapy, Dr. Jill Carnahan talking about mast cell activation syndrome, Dr. Matt Cook talking about uh, post-COVID as well as ozone and peptides, Dr. Summer Beatty talking about regenerative medicine, especially with the Lyme community, and then Dr. Marco Ruggiero talking about brain health and Lyme. We also have wonderful sponsors, including Weber Medical, that are going to be talking about photodynamic therapy and Lyme. So I hope that you're going to be joining us. I'm really excited to put this together. We also have a treat in the middle of the day. My dear friend, Katie Strakosh is going to be leading us through some yoga and breath work so we can stay energized to receive all this exciting information. So I hope that you'll join us. We have information in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for being part of my community. 